0: Welcome and welcome back to Not Your Token Minority. This is another rerun episode from 2021, and I chose this particular conversation to republish because of the discussions around the intersection of sexuality and race. Alex is part Taiwanese, part Vietnamese, and currently lives in Texas. We chat all about what it's like for him living as a gay Asian man in a conservative part of the United States and his journey to embracing and being comfortable with his own identity. Thanks so much for joining me on my podcast. I really appreciate your time, and I think it's especially an important time to be talking with you about your experience and things right now with everything going on. There's been a lot of coverage around anti-Asian hate crimes and violence. Can you talk a bit about what that's been like from your experience?
1: Yeah, you know, I you know, I think that you know what's interesting is with our with our previous um, president, forty five when he he started the rhetoric you know i don't think it it was the only cause of this type of rhetoric i think it would it happens anyways right um the us has this epidemic of shootings for example and one of the first things that's looked at is the shooter's motive and the shooter's race right and then as soon as that's uncovered if it's a if it's a minority race that minority tends to go run for cover because they know that the majority is probably going to be accusing them of Um, contributing to that right so for me when 45 you know said that i knew that it was just shortly after that we would have more issues i'm i'm shocked that it took this long to get coverage i'm thinking that you know when pandemic started and that rhetoric started i'm pretty sure these things were already happening but they weren't getting the press and now in this environment that's getting the press it's getting the momentum it's social media has its eyes on it So now we're seeing it. So I I can't say I'm shocked by it. What I'm most discouraged by it is that they seem to be hitting elderly. And, you know, as you're aware, just in Eastern culture, the elderly are are sacred to us, right? You know, I think about my grandparents and my mom and um, you hold them in high esteem and you see that they're hurting the elderly of your community and it hits harder. You know, a community that is so defenseless um, against any type of random attack, And I think that's where the burn hits, you know?
0: Yeah, I think there's so many elements to it. There's like that filial piety, but then there's also like seeing your own mother or grandmother or dad in those people who are being hurt. And then there's also the sort of approach that a lot of Asians take to just sort of keeping their head down and just being humble and staying quiet and just getting on with things. So. I don't know. I think that all comes together and it's just, <laughs> I don't know. When I started seeing all that coverage, I just, it, it was like a mix of anger and like frustration and sadness.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and, and and it's hard for me to compartmentalize the feelings sometimes because on, you know, on one end, I personally have not experienced anything directly because of this, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't impact me to see it happen but I think what bothers me more if I think about it is really seeing the indifference of the people in my community that really are not concerned with it, right? And I think that's where the rub is for me sometimes is that why aren't you reaching out? Why aren't you more empathetic to this cause? I see your Instagram posts and all I see are pictures of your baby and you and taking glamour shots. And, and then you bring up something as, you know, useless to, to complain about when there are bigger things that are occurring and, and, and you're not bringing to light that conversation to anybody. And to me, that, that to me is more discouraging that people that I thought were very close to me as friends really aren't really thinking of me as a part of that race or, you know, about that group to say. Alex, are you are you good? Are you know? Is your family okay? What are your cons- what are your concerns? Is there anything that I could do to support? I've had one person come to me and ask me, and which is so shocking.
0: Yeah, that's just not good enough, and I feel so similar to you as well because that's probably one of the most discouraging. And sort of saddening things for me as well that so many people around me, it's like you can't say that you haven't seen the news and yet it's just silence or it's as if it's not happening. I remember when the week of the shooting, I had friends just messaging me complaining about the most mundane things and I couldn't deal with it. Like it's just, it's so hurtful.
1: Yeah, it, it is because. It's just like ignoring the top priority things that are occurring that are that people are actually hurting with, and then bringing up something that's just so meaningless to the forefront in conversation. And I don't understand it. You know, one of the examples—I don't know if you've you've heard any of this—but you know, the um, rapper Lil Nas X. He is a um, a black queer rapper, and he just came out with a song, and the song accompanied this video. And there's a lot of like Satanistic suggestion with the video. And so a lot of people are like losing their minds over this video um, that, you know, it's like Satan worshiping or whatever. But, you know, with that, he released a set of a thousand pairs of these um, modified Nikes that were Satan shoes, right? Has like the Pentagram 666, all that. And I see people that don't comment on anything that is. That to me is more meaningful where people are hurting, but really offended by this, right? And and to me, it's like, this is is the problem with apathy, because you could empathize with the situation because you're a white Christian person, and this is you under attack indirectly. But if it's another group that you don't identify with, then it's not even worth commenting on. And, and that's where my rub is, because if you want to stay that brand and never talk about anything, then that's you. But if you if you poke your head out every once in a while, but it's really just to defend who you are and what you believe in as far as you as a person and not really defending another group, I have a problem with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And for me, a lot of the process has been kind of figuring out. You know, like these people around me, like I know that if something happened in front of their eyes and they would speak up or do whatever, but then it's like, is that enough? I think it's no longer enough to just stay silent, even when it's not happening right in front of your eyes to sort of speak out and talk about it.
1: Yeah. And the the way I see it is like, I can see my 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 group, my friends come to my rescue because they love me. But that doesn't mean that they love Asian people, right? And those are two distinctly different things. So, you know, the defense of I'm not racist, I have a black friend, right? You could still be racist. You know, you could be married to that opposing race and still be racist. That still can occur. So for me, yeah, those people that I'm I'm really disappointed by will come to my rescue. I know they will do that. But that just means they love me. It it doesn't mean they love my race, my culture, my family, where I come from.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And going back to something that you brought up before, like the, just the lack of people who have even bothered to reach out and ask if you're okay. I had two of my friends message me, and they're both women of color, and. I could not articulate how profoundly moving it was for me to actually receive those messages. And all they said was, are you okay? And I'm here for you. And honestly, that is all you need to say sometimes, because I know that some people, they don't know what to say in these situations, but I'm saying that all you need to do is literally message your friend and just be like, are you okay?
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I totally agree. And you know, I, I think about the way I reacted with Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd last year and Breonna Taylor. And I, and I, I remember the struggle of thinking, okay, what, what do I do to reach out to the people of color that I know? What, what can I do to learn and educate myself? And to me, this is kind of a learning a year later to say, wow, I'm now on the receiving end. How would I, how would I like to be approached? Right. And how did that differ from the way I approached it the other direction, right? And I think at the end of the day, it's, it's really not a single answer. You know, I think it's, we're not, a, we're not a monolithic group. Asian in general encompasses so many different cultures and different ways to approach it that there's no one way to do it. But to your point, the simple, hey, I hope you're doing well, or I hope, you know, if you need a person to talk to, you know, I'm here for you. That's all you really need to do at minimum, right? Just checking in on you. And, and to me, that, that speaks volumes than just avoiding the situation out of, you know, fear of conflict.
0: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> totally agree. So we've talked a lot about, I guess, the Asian American experience at the moment. So I guess just to clarify, can you talk a bit about your personal background?
1: Yeah. So I, I'm turning 39 next week. Oh, happy um, birthday! Happy yeah, birthday! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the big four is coming up soon. So my background is I'm 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 half Vietnamese. Um, my my father um, immigrated from Vietnam post war, and my other half is Taiwanese. My mother, so yeah, I I identify more closely to being Taiwanese. Just because my parents split up as a young age and my mother raised us and so she raised us in the culture that she's most familiar with which is Taiwan so i identify with being more chinese than my vietnamese side i was born in california so i'm i consider myself an american first and foremost and with a with a strong connection not a strong connection i don't want to say strong but a good connection to my ethnic background just you know being around my family and having currently being you know the first gen american in my family other than that, you know, I think another thing that really identifies me is I'm gay. I was 28 years old when I moved to, to um, Texas and actually came out in Texas. <laughs> so it was a very interesting coming out story because, you know, I think 28, it's pretty late by normal standards to actually come out of the closet. But I waited to move to Texas, the most conservative state, arguably in the U.S., and you know, live alone and not have anybody around me to finally come out of the closet. But uh, I did, and it was the best day of my life. I'll always kind of hold that as a really good experience for myself to to reflect on, because that's the moment you know you just get to be your authentic self and you feel more worthy of everything. Things changed. I, I could distinctly remember, you know, the first person I told on the phone. And just the feeling of the weight being lifted off me, that it was out and that I could start moving on um, with my life and, you know, getting the things that I, I never thought I could deserve. I was on a short plan to move back to California. But shortly after that, I, I met my current husband, Scott, and we've been together for 10 years. We're going to be together for 10 years this summer. And we were married over three years ago. Ah, oh, congratulations. Um, yeah, So, you know, I I think for me, what really defines me personally, um, as far as my experience goes, just being an Asian American gay male and just really maneuvering what that looks like in a professional world, in a personal world, in a conservative world. So just it's been a great learning.
0: Did you have many role models around you or did you kind of have to navigate all of that on your own?
1: I had role models in the more conventional sense of role model. So, you know, cisgendered man, men and women that I really looked up to. But I really didn't have any type of role modeling for a gay person. All I really had exposure to as far as gay people was what I saw in entertainment. Being born in the 80s and growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, there wasn't much well-rounded representation of gay people. It was always the stereotypical gay person portrayed in a very stereotypical way. Like super um, I flamboyant. Think, yeah, super <laughs> flamboyant and all this, you know, just like, you know, the life of the party and, you know, not going to settle down living a life of just whatever they want. And people do that. And I think people do that whether you're gay or straight. It's just that when the representation only focuses on one genotype, there's a bit of a misrepresentation there. What I think about it is you know, when, I, when I came out to my mom, the first thing she was worried about was kids, not having kids. And the second thing was me getting AIDS. That kind of gives you some insight on what's really being portrayed out there of gay people. If you know those are the top two things that you start thinking of. The kids think I could get, but Getting a disease is just interesting because it's not just gay people that get AIDS. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. So. That was all driven by, it's not a marketing thing, but it was kind of the messaging, right? In sort of the 70s and 80s, wasn't it? That it was like a something related to homosexuality. And it was, wasn't it kind of used to demonize it as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's... It, it's it's a bit hard to get away from that narrative because it is very much ingrained in our community, right? I think our, our community was very hard hit when AIDS became a really broad scale epidemic during the Reagan administration. And it was ignored by the FDA and people were dying and, and there was no solution in sight because it was really seen as a, as a gay disease. It wasn't happening to mainstream people. So, you know, people kind of saw it as a punishment for being gay. You know, even so today, there's less of that narrative, but it's still a part of it. And it's something that I don't wish to lose, to be honest with you, because I think it's very important to understand that history and to also think about all the lives that were lost during that time without any support, love or even care. And in many circumstances, just kind of left to die and abandoned by their families. What I'm encouraged by as far as, you know, just speaking to the gay experience is that the representation is becoming more diverse I, I'm seeing more movies and shows that it's not a coming out story. It's not about somebody having really strong um, issues coming out of the closet and, you know, being depressed. There's still that. Don't get me wrong. But there are a lot of represented rep- stories where, that are very great. I, for example, had a fantastic coming out. I, I was only met with love. All, all my male friends that I thought would push me away cried with me and, it, it was, it all changed. Right. And, and so there are stories like that. And you know, that those stories need to be told too just to give a, a well rounded understanding of what it is to be gay.
0: I'm really glad to hear that you had such a positive coming out experience. Do you think that lack of representation kind of contributed to you coming out quite late?
1: Yeah, I do. What happens is if you don't have a lot of representation of, of who you are, and everybody just takes snippets of what society tells you that you are. Then you usually get just the real bad parts of it, right? You get the comments of, you know, oh that's so gay, or um, you know, you, you hear comments about other, you know, gay people or, or things like that. You just get the negative of it because if you're in a, if you're in a, if you're an outsider in a very majority type of world, you you really only see the poor side of that representation. And you don't get anybody that really tries to exemplify what it could be for you. I had to find that myself. And the way I really found it was honestly getting into my first relationship with a boy and really feeling the butterflies for the first time in my life and thinking about the possibility of not being lonely and, and, and having happiness. And after I, I felt that, even though it didn't last, I knew it was worth it and that was enough for me to kind of model myself towards something better for myself. But yeah, it's, it wasn't easy. I mean, afterwards I went to therapy, lots of work to get there, (laughs) but, but you know, it's, it, 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 it's possible. And there's a lot of, it gets better campaigns out there. And I, I truly believe that when you are, you are on, um, you know, the queer end of, of life or, something that's not majority driven, it gets better. You you find your family, you find your niche, you find your voice, but you have to really put work into it.
0: And did you have any fear around how your mom would take it?
1: Oh yeah. So I, you know, I came out at 28. I told all my friends and then, you know, friends are easy to tell. And then you start going to family and I have one sister who's older And when I told her, her first response was, you can't tell mom. It was just a gut reaction. I don't fault her for that. And it's just, it's just what she felt at the time. But what that did was push me in the closet for another year before I told my mom.
0: Right. It it would have just made you so much more frightened of her reaction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and this is where, you know, words matter. I think that that's the one thing that like everything that comes out of somebody's mouth really matters all the time. You can't assume that you're in a in a in a safe space with people that think like you or believe like you, because your words, by even just dropping, gay, could push somebody further in the closet because they think that you're you would not accept them if they were gay. So, to me, just you know looking backwards, it really does matter. But, you know, as far as my mom goes, I I decided to tell her on a trip back home. My grandfather was ill, so I went back to go see him. It was a really hard weekend. Um, He came out of it, and I was going to go fly back to Dallas, and my mom was taking me back to the airport. And I remember saying, okay, well, it's not a good time because Grandpa's sick. But then I thought, you know, it's never going to be a good time because you're going to come back, it's Christmas, and you're going to say... It's not a good time because it's Christmas and you want your mom to be happy, right? So I just said, you know, I'm going to tell her on my way to the airport because that way I know the conversation will end and I'll be off on my way, <laughs> right? You can <laughs> escape. Yeah. So I, I remember seeing, um, you know, my hometown, I remember seeing all the the exits on the freeway and saying, okay, when I get to this exit, I'm going to bring it up. And then I would go to the next exit and say, okay, I'm going to bring it up. And then I finally just said it while I was driving, and it was extremely emotional, and it was just a very dizzying situation. And I got dropped off. My mom wasn't... She's not this person that says, get out of my life type situation. She was just trying to absorb it all, and I think she took it really well. I I wasn't afraid that my mom would say something or do something that was drastic. I was more afraid of disappointing her. I don't care how old you are, you just don't want to disappoint your parents. And I think that was my fear.
0: What about the situation? Did you feel would disappoint her?
1: You know, i i I've always inadvertently felt, you know, the male pressure of the family. My parents splitting up early, and, and really me really being raised by my mo- mom and my sister. I had to kind of grow into what it meant to be the male of the family, and. I always wanted to deliver what I knew what my mom wanted, which is a good job, a good wife, kids, a big house. One day she would move into the house, take care of the kids. We'd have this, you know, big extended family in the house and she could be proud of her her son, you know? And so in my mind, I was really crashing down on what that looked like for her by telling her who I was, who I am. So that was my fear. And I don't, I don't know if it was fair to project that on her because it was really my fear. Now that I'm over 11 years out of being out of the closet and my mom just loving my husband unconditionally and who I am and who he is and just really loving the time that she has with us when we do see her, you know, I think it might have been my own fear projected on her. So it's a learning.
0: I think um, as kids of, I can only speak from like the Asian experience, but we, I think we do project a lot of our own fears onto our parents when actually all they really want is for us to love our lives and to be happy.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, I, I feel like oftentimes Asian parents in Western cultures, we almost assume that they don't get it. Mm. Right. I, I, sometimes I'm just like, Oh, my mom is, she's just not aware of this. And then you get these moments of conversation sometimes, and you're like, well, shit, you do get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you're you're an actual person that understands your own faults. And all this time, I I always thought you were a bit unknowable in that respect, but they totally do. And that's been such a learning, too, to not shortchange them. They have the capacity to be there and show up and, and understand where you're coming from and, and have have that love for you that you know they do. Do you yeah.
0: think that it was a shock to her when you told her?
1: I wonder about that. I don't know fully, right? I you know, we don't have children and I've talked I I've had all these discussions with people. You know, my husband, for example, you know, he was brought up Southern Baptist and his his parents don't accept us. And he's had a completely different coming out journey just because, you know, the Christian background really um, inhibits progress for them. But in my mind, like if I had a child, like, especially if I, if I was a, the mother or, you know, the person that really spent the most time with my child, how could you not know? <laughs> my earliest memory was being at a Hallmark gift store. And my mom said, you know, to my sister and I go and choose something, choose one thing that you want. And then I, for some reason, chose this notepad of, uh Michelangelo's torso, <laughs> right? It was just like a bare torso. I mean, and it's, a great torso. I, it's a great torso. Right. And then so I handed it to my mom and she looked at me like, why do you want this? <laughs> and that's my earliest memory of uh, that. I should not like that. I shouldn't gravitate towards that. And it's not sexual at that point. It's just, it's just like, you know, why do some little boys and little girls get infatuated when a woman or a man comes in and it's not sexual. It's just, it's just a, a thing. I don't know what, I don't know what, it, what to call it, but you know you just you gravitate towards it.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting as well because obviously gender is a social construct and it's just it's kind of amazing and crazy to me to think about all the different ways that we're conditioned to think like what is masculine, what is feminine without even realizing it and also how we reinforce those ideals when we don't necessarily even realize that we're doing it.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's, it's this weird thing and that others try to push your masculinity or femininity based on their preference. And I I have such a problem with that. I I have a problem with, okay, so in, in the gay community, right? I, Asian men, and I think Asian men in and even in the straight community, it's statistically shown that Asian men are the least sexually desirable. If you look at dating websites, if you look at porn websites, Asian women are fetishized and Asian men are totally desexualized. And you know, from my understanding of the origins of that, it's clear you know with colonization of why this occurred in history and time that Asian men were brought down to this this space to be seen as effeminate or non-sexual. So I think when you're a gay Asian male, it's almost like a double hit sometimes because people perceive you as having more feminine traits. Now, I don't take offense to that because I don't think being effeminate is offensive, right? But what I do take offense to is when somebody has an expectation for you based on what they think you should be. Like if they see me on a dating website, they might make the assumption that I'm more on the effeminate end, right? Without knowing who I am. And when they see me, they might be shocked and they might even make a little microaggressive comment of saying, I would never even know that you're gay. Right. And I, to me, that's so offensive because I mean, I don't really know that you're straight. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like a really weird thing to say. Um, I I, I don't know. I, I, to me, Being accused of being masculine or feminine, I I only find it offensive if it comes from a place of somebody having an expectation for you to be masculine or feminine. But if you yourself identify or really have an identity of one or the other, that's really your choice. And being more feminine or being more masculine is not a negative nor positive. It's who you are.
0: Yeah, for sure. What what was it like for you then growing up as an Asian boy in a world that is constantly telling you how unattractive and how unappealing you are?
1: I feel like it's like it, it, you don't know sometimes when you're in it that it's horrible. Me not really dating dating until later in life. I don't think I really understood how awful it is until I really started to date. You know, and I think when people are able to put ethnic preferences on dating apps and websites and Mm -hmm. things like that it really, it's, it, I remember just like being in that place of, oh my gosh, like I would like to connect with this person, but they don't have Asian listed right. or they might even have no Asian listed, like right. literally in their profile, no Asians. Mm. And then you're thinking, oh my gosh, right? Like I am, I am not sexually attractive. I, I am, I am seen as an outsider in this community. And this community only really likes one, you know, type of person. Mm. Um, and you'd start believing that you are not attractive and you're not sexual. And I think a lot of that I still carry with me. I, I still, you know, have these long self-deprecating sessions with my husband all the time where he's arguing <laughs> with me about how, how ridiculous I am. And I'm just saying, you don't understand. <laughs> you, you know, you, you just you just don't understand what it feels like to... Even even if you even if I was a straight Asian male, to really still have to go against that current of you are not a viable partner, you're literally not on the the, the realm of sexuality for me. <laughs> so, yeah, I it's 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 really difficult. I think some positives are is I think things are changing there as well. I'm, I I mean, Crazy Rich Asians was such a pinnacle moment for everybody <laughs> that's Asian. I think whether you love it or you hate it. I just love the fact that they sexualize the heck out of Henry Golding, right? And you know, have him with his shirt off, have him sweating, you know, have people swoon over him, and that's what needs to happen. And I I want it to happen with more Asian looking men. That's not the not the Henry Golding. That's you know, part white and part Asian. I'm not taking that away from him, but I want. I want more just representation that all Asian men are in the same level of playing field and they could be sexualized just like anybody else.
0: So I watched a video on YouTube the other day and it was talking to some gay guys about their experiences being discriminated ethnically because they were all like Asian of some sort. Have you also experienced that? Like, do you feel like there's a lot? There is a lot of discrimination within the gay community in terms of dating.
1: Oh yeah. My husband is white and in the, in the brief time period that I did date, it's very, it's very white oriented as far as the gay dating scene. I would say, I'll I'll even say that even if you're white Latino, it's still geared towards that type of um, person. That's the most favored there. And, you know, if you, you do, if you do follow groups on, you know, Instagram, oftentimes groups of gay men tend to be very one race and segregated. Oftentimes like there's very few times where I see a very mixed group of friends um, that are all different ethnicities, but you, you see the really white oriented, very fit, good looking phenotype all kind of congregate together and you just feel very out of place. You know, it's funny with, with Scott and I, you know We love our community, but I think it's a hard community to actually be in sometimes because there is that layer that you have to kind of break through to, to become a part of a group. And I think making friends as an, as an older adult is already difficult already. So when you have these very strong, tight-knit groups to enter in as an outsider, it's always takes some work. And from my perspective, whether real or not, me being an, an Asian gay male, it's always a little more difficult. And, and so oftentimes we have friends organically and it's, it's really irrespective of their their sexual preference because at the end of the day, I don't care who you sleep with. <laughs> so I just like you who, for who you are. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot of discrimination that is in the gay community, not just against Asians. You know, I think it happens to all minorities.
0: Yeah. Do you think there's anything that can be changed about that?
1: Oh man, I, I, I just I think the only thing that could happen is you know rep- more representation, and you know what I'm seeing oftentimes too is that even in 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 gay representation in media and film and shows, oftentimes the person that's brought forward as the gay person is that really good looking white type. There are very few characters that are that even non good looking. Asian type or very good looking Asian type, or just a different diversity of who you're looking at as the gay anchor character. So you know, I, I think that with, with changes there, you know, I think people will kind of see things differently. I, I, I think, you know, Asian characters, Asian male characters being sexualized as well, that are gay is helpful. Henry Golding actually did a gay, film called monsoon okay he did a a, it was a very independent um film where he he plays a a gay male and i loved it because it was really looking at a central character that was not white good looking and that was very sexual being a gay male so that that to me is progress
0: yeah i think for people who haven't had true representations of themselves around them. It can feel so reaffirming and validating when you see yourself in another, right?
1: Yeah, it's unreal. It's really unreal because this whole time growing up, and I'm sure you experienced the same thing, but you watch all these things of everybody but yourself. And how do you learn about and love yourself if you don't see yourself in anything. And and when you do see yourself back in the 80s and 90s, you were looking at like long duck dong. You were looking at, you know, these people that weren't representative of who you are. I I remember being in elementary school and one of my white friends said to me one day after knowing him, probably for the entire school year, he said, I thought you were Mexican, Alex. I said, what? "What?" And and he's like, well, because you don't talk like you're Chinese. And and this was in elementary school, so even him at that age, he was exposed to Asian characters with these really heavy, ridiculous accents, and not anybody that was born into America. So it's just really interesting. It
0: always baffles me when people say things like that, because I've been told many times throughout my life so far that I don't sound Chinese. And I'm just kind of like, what do you expect me to sound like? Like those... Awful caricatures that you've grown up watching on TV, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, totally. I, I i I've gotten that same feedback as well, and it it's just <laughs> it's just it's really interesting. i i I just had a, a, a memory of flashes in my head. There was a a really funny story. Um so one of our friends here in Dallas is white. We ran into him somewhere, and in he, he he's out he was actually in the closet, I think still probably is in the closet. But he was with his mother, who's from like the panhandle of Texas, and Sorry, he introduced. Um, you know, Texas. If you look at the shape of it, the, Texas uh, has this top part that's like a box. Yeah. Yeah. So we call that the panhandle, like a um, you know frying pan. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's it's very you know rural area, more of a um, more of a backcountry type culture, right? So he introduces all of us and he says, Yeah, this is my friend Alex. And then later on they walk up the stairs. But later on he said, funniest thing, when my when I told my mom that your name was Alex, her response was, Oh, I would have never guessed that. Oh. And so <laughs> oh, I was just like, What did you expect my name <laughs> to be? And it's funny because it's it's actually my legal name. I didn't I'd never had a Chinese name that was you know, made pal- palatable to white people to be Alex. My my mom and dad named me Alex. I still have no idea how. <laughs> <laughs> they, they came up with this conclusion to name me Alex. And I love my name, but I just thought that was so funny that somebody would expect my name to be like, you know, Chin or something yeah. like that.
0: Um, what did you say to that?
1: You know, I... I, I laughed it off, right? I thought it was funny. And sometimes I question myself for laughing now and I don't know how serious to take it. Because if it's somebody that's coming to you, I, I just don't want to, I don't easily get offended myself mm-hmm. because I feel like my personally, I'm I'm a pretty offensive person. I'm <laughs> I'm pretty loose lipped and I say what's on my mind. So I hope people don't get offended by me. So I try not to take things too seriously but I, but there are certain situations where i i look back in retrospect and i wish i could challenge it a bit more you know at least say well what did you what did you say to her you know how did you correct her things like that because laughing is not always progressive
0: no exactly i feel the same way because i don't really like to there's a lot to it. Like, I don't really like to make people feel uncomfortable. And I kind of just like having things quite lighthearted to to begin with. But then I also like having these kinds of conversations and being able to learn from other people. Um And I I do think that a lot of us, especially with our past traumas, we've kind of brushed them off. But thinking back now, I think all of us would have wished to have been able to challenge them a bit more
1: yeah I I agree I I feel like we're more in tune to the more egregious offenses right and we think in our head oh I wouldn't take that if somebody said that to me but sometimes I wonder if I would just by the nature of how I was raised and just as us as a general culture of non-confrontation just put put your head down and move on and you know don't don't let them get to you don't challenge and move on. I'd like to think that I would really stick up for myself, but I don't know if I would a hundred percent in yeah, every circumstance. Me
0: neither. I wonder that as well. Cause sometimes I think my bark is worse than my bite. <laughs> like I, I say a lot of stuff, but then I'm like, Oh, if I was in that situation, would I really speak up? Would I really talk back and stand up for myself? I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that. And I, I really I really don't know if many people know that unless they've they've come if, if unless they've been on that spectrum of just being repeatedly offended. And and unfortunately there are people that way that have become so hardened by it that they know exactly how they would react, right? And I think if you're on the end of, you know, it doesn't happen to you very often, but if it does, you really don't know what to do. You're not in practice for that. You didn't think about that. And my big intersection is being not white and gay, and and so when we when Scott and I travel, especially to more rural areas and non urban areas, I'm always wondering about: are we going to get any pushback for being a gay couple getting a, a king bed? Luckily, we don't have never encountered it, but it's always in the back of my head. Even if we get a question of this is a king size room, that's a that's a pretty aggressive comment um, to say to two to men, and the only type of like for me, that's, that's kind of an aggressive comment or microaggression is when Scott and I eat together and it's like a nice restaurant on a Friday night and they ask us if we want separate checks. It's interesting to me because on one end, I can, I could see where maybe two men that were not together and not gay be offended, but I can't understand why they would be offended. But for me, I get a little bit. I get a little bit peeved by that because you wouldn't ask a man and a woman eating dinner on a Friday night if they wanted separate checks. Yeah. Um, don't don't so. you feel
0: that's such a product of our heteronormative society as well?
1: Yes. Yes. I 100% believe that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, our structure is really built for that. So
0: Yeah. Do you think your experience would be different if your partner wasn't white?
1: That's a great question. I've never actually thought about that. So if I were to be married to another Asian person, for example, I don't. I don't know if it'd be different. Actually, I really don't. I I don't know if if that assumption would be any different if we, if if he was not white. I I definitely think that us not um, us not having like if I I consider myself a soft person of color to be honest with you. Right, I don't I don't experience the same exact same apples to apples of people of color and when i think of people of color in the u.s i think of um black people and i think of latin people and other people you know from india and places like that 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 really get a a strong discrimination against the color of their skin right so if, if i if we were different i i don't know what that would look like if you had a different intersection of being gay and a black couple, a black male couple, or a a black mixed race couple, black and Asian. I don't know what that looks like. I can't imagine it being easier. I mean, I think, I think the more, the more minorities that intersect with the person, the harder it gets. Even if that person was not gay and just black, there's enough systemic racism here and in the world that already makes the baseline lower for them to move to a more equitable state so you you know you confound that with sexuality queerness you know transgender not living that heteronormative profile then it gets really difficult right it gets really really complicated for that person to exist and to occupy space and allow people to give space for them uh, i feel like a lot of times in those 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 persons and you know sometimes like myself you're very cautious of how much space you occupy you you always think about i'm not deserving of everything in this room so let me occupy as as little as possible to allow for the other people that deserve it the space
0: actually that reminds me of a point that you brought up earlier about after coming out and feeling like you finally could deserve the things that you wanted something along those lines do you mind elaborating a bit more on that
1: yeah you know what was interesting for me coming out was prior to coming out I was just an Asian male I was an Asian male that was extremely picky (laughs) 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 Alex is just so picky he's too busy with work and occupied with his time to, to find a mate but you know as soon as I I came out I really then felt the weight of minority. I think prior to that, I don't think I ever experienced any type of adversity, you know, professionally or friendship wise, based on being an Asian male. But as soon as I came out, I almost felt like everybody knew. I actually remember coming out and going to the gayborhood area on accident because I was looking to get a tattoo in, in, in Texas. And the and this tattoo place happens to be on um, the main gay thoroughfare in Dallas. And I remember coming out of that car into the tattoo parlor and finally realizing that I was in the gay area and feeling so out of place. And I was like, I do not fit in this community because this, a part of you still in the closet and a part of you is repulsed by it. Because... Part of being in the closet means you learn to hate that part of you. So everything about it, you hate. Like, for example, prior to me coming out, I wasn't attracted to gay men. I was attracted to more straight men, right? When I saw gay men on TV, I didn't gravitate towards those guys because in my mind, I needed to reject that person. But after I came out, then I found gay men much more attractive than straight men. And it, it, the, whole, the whole thing just switched for me. But I remember going through that situation, and I actually called um, our mutual friend, um, Jenny and Mike and, and really having a hard conversation with them saying, I don't know where I, I fit. You know, I, I don't fit in your world anymore. And I don't fit in the world where I think I should fit. And I need to see a therapist. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's when I started seeing a therapist. Um, but you know, I, going back to your original point of just like being deserving of it, um, you, you realize that you've been missing a part of your life that was, that's so needed as far as growth goes, like romantic love. I think the majority of people need it. I know there's people that don't, right? And, and I, I want to leave space for that. But I would say most commonly, you know, companionship is important, whether it be just sexual companionship or really just having somebody there that loves you in a different way. I didn't know that that I needed it that much until I knew that I could survive if everybody left me and they would be worth it because what I would get from this companionship would be everything that I would want as a person. So for me, like coming out was that ticket for me to say, you deserve this. You need this. Um, This is a part of, of who you are and how to be happy and if there are people that walk away from you, it's worth it because this is more worth it um, and I think that's how I encourage myself towards just being my authentic self.
0: Do you feel like you are a part of a community now?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I want to say yes and no i I don't you know my right now being somewhat displaced from my, my core group, our core group in California, I do feel a little bit misfitted. I, I really enjoy and love the friends that we have accumulated here and in Dallas, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, if it's to the depth of fulfillment that I would want, or maybe I'm comparing too much to childhood friendships And maybe that's unfair because I think those friendships have likely evolved without me being there and kind of being more distant with it. So maybe everything has changed, including myself. And maybe as you get older, your need for that community kind of diminishes because it's more reliance on your partner. So I can't really say that I have and I can't really say that I haven't. I, I know that the people I know here make me happy and I hope I make them happy. That's all I can really say. I, I can't really go deeper into that, you know?
0: Do you think you'll ever leave Texas?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> I you know, I say it quick, not to say that I hate it here. You know, what I what I really what I really was what's eye-opening for me is that I get this question all the time. Why do you live in Texas, right? How do you deal with those politics? How do you how do you deal with being gay in Texas? And I, th- I think at the end of the day, people have more in common than they don't. And it- it's proof positive that, you know, we could be in a- in this this world that's seemingly not okay with gay people or-, or non-white people and really maneuver beautifully because people here are lovely. Like, I love our street. I love my neighbors. We just have a great residence and community and all that. And I, I do love it. So I don't think that... Politics always equals closed-mindedness. And I don't think region really dictates what you're going to get. And I think that's the learning here. And I also don't think that you're any better by surrounding yourself with people that only believe the same way you do. I like to think that for us, we might be that diversity for those groups in our society, right, in our community that don't have diversity at all. Like when I'm bringing braised soy sauce, pork, and eggs to a potluck, (laughs) I don't think anybody else is bringing that, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And 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 when I'm, you know, when we are a gay couple and I could just authentically be my gay self in front of these people that are not, um, you know, it's a change because these people are going to have kids. And if they have kids and one of their kids is gay, they're going to have a different representative person in mind that their kids are going to be fine, and if, if I if I only surround myself with people that are like me and and believe in what I believe, then I can't disrupt any system at all just by being me. It's like passive active activism, I think. You're in a place where you don't really fit fully, but you just being you is a form of activism.
0: And especially thinking about like the younger generations as well, kind of being the representation that you never got when you were their age as well. Um, right
1: yeah that's right
0: Yeah, all this conversation has been so good and so enlightening because when we first caught up you were saying how being gay was like the least interesting thing about
1: you <laughs> <laughs> I still think that <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> no it's been super super interesting and thank you for being so frank about it did you want to go into your cultural background as well or?
1: sure yeah I mean you know It's interesting because, you know, my mom, my mom came to the States in her 20s and it wasn't really by her choice. It was, it was my grandparents being Asian parents and and kind of forcing her away from a guy that didn't have any money that she was in love with. They kind of tricked her into moving to the States and not giving her a ticket to go back to Taiwan. So the story goes, my mom was seeing a guy in, in Taiwan and my, at that time, her older sister had married a, an American that was in the air force and had moved to California and my grandparents didn't want them to be together. So they said, you know, go visit your sister in California. So they got her ticket. She flew to California. And when like when she got there, they said, okay, well, you're not coming back. So she didn't go back. And, and somewhere down the line, my my aunt or or somebody in my family really kind of pushed my mom and dad together. And I think about this so it's such an interesting scenario in my mind because my mom was learning English. My dad had just come from Vietnam, learning English, and so they were both Asian, but culturally could not relate, being Vietnamese and Taiwanese. So their their singular language to communicate was English, and both of them were learning English. So I, I you know, first I'm like, that's that's just that just sounds like a very impossible scenario for success, <laughs> all right? You you came here not by your choice. You had a love somewhere else. You get put together with this person that you don't love. And on top of that, you really don't have any commonality and can't communicate to, to the depths that you want to because there's this language barrier. And they were oil and water. So they were just like, not meant to be really not a good situation. But they had my sister and I, and, you know, we were eventually just raised by my, my mom the entire time. So my mom... Was, was really forced as a single mom to to raise us and we did not have money. And so she became a waitress at a popular diner chain here called Denny's. I'm not sure if you've ever heard oh, of it. We have, we have Denny's as well. <laughs> oh, you have Denny's. Yeah, so we have we have Denny's here and my mom got a waitressing job and she worked there for like over a decade as uh-huh. a waitress. And, you know, I think about that experience too, where, you know, my mom was working in the early 90s as a waitress at a diner and really getting her arms around English better and maneuvering that world and working with Americans. And it's so impressive that she did that. And what I find so crazy is that she still feels that she's not smart because she doesn't know English to the, to the depths that we do. Or she didn't go to college. But I feel like the level of intelligence my mom has just to, to, you know, have that bravery to go in head first and learn it and really thrive in the culture and, and you know, bring us up well was so impressive to me. Yeah, um, that's yeah.
0: amazing. I think it's incredible what our parents go through and the struggles that they go through, especially in like a new country, different culture, different language. Does your mom ever talk about her experiences back then?
1: No, you know, not, not much. And to be fair, I don't, I don't ask. I don't know if the the information that I know about that backstory is supposed to be known to me. (laughs) You know, it's one of those things that kind of circles back to you about your, your parents history. So I I guess I've always been a little uncomfortable to try to validate and hear more of that story. But I, I do think that I should get more of that background story from her.
0: Yeah. And I guess, I guess for our parents as well, or your mom, it might come with trauma.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a level of like, I don't want to talk about it. Right. And I don't know, you know, the resources back then for everybody, I believe was just, you know, grit through it, especially if you are an immigrant, you don't have resources, just grind down and, and move on. There's none of this, well, I need to get a therapist, right? Oh, <laughs> I, need, <no. laughs> I need some help.
0: No, mental I, health is not a discussion in Asian families.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you grit through it and you, you're like, uh, I, why, are you, why are you so upset? You have all your needs met. That's really the message that you get. And, and so when I think about that, I, I just like, I, I don't know if a lot of the things that my mom had gone through as a young woman are really resolved in her without addressing it. So I I, I think that's kind of, kind of one of my big questions. Yeah.
0: Maybe ask her about it one day.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like a really deep conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know.
0: I don't know about you, but I find it quite difficult to have these kinds of conversations with my parents. Cause there's actually so much that I want to know about their lives before they had me, but it's always so awkward asking them.
1: Yeah. It feels like you're like meddling in their business <laughs> yeah. a bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like forcing them to talk about things they might not necessarily want to talk about.
1: Yeah, totally. You know, I, I, I totally I totally see that. But I do want to say that I did have this one conversation with my, my mom. And, you know, I, I think this is probably a very distinctly Asian type thing. And I don't want to say that. I don't want to make that generalization. But typically, it's hard to communicate with Asian parents, right? I think in general it's very when I for example when I see my white friends and they were talking to their parents about sex in high school like my jaw just hit the ground (laughs) right
0: That's crazy I
1: I just thought like there's no way in hell would I have this conversation with my mom or dad and my mom and dad are not my friends yeah
0: exactly yes that relationship which is more like a friendship I don't understand. I cannot relate.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I like, I I do not understand that at all, but you know, I, I will say there was this one time where I was having coffee with my mom and then she was having some, uh, she was having a little like fight with my sister. Cause they just bicker her all the time. Mm. But then my mom just unprompted really started going through a lot of what I perceived as wrongs in our childhood. And, It was almost as if she was confessing the things that I knew were wrong, but it would never go well if I asked her to admit that she did wrong.
0: What do you mean by wrong?
1: So we had struggles, you know, growing up. She did her best. She was a single mom trying to raise two kids uh, with a waitress salary, right? So she did her best, but there were things that were not the best choices, right, for us. In retrospect, I'm keenly aware of what those choices were. But in my mind, my mom didn't have awareness to it, that she was oblivious to it or in denial of them. But in this conversation, just imagine like having a conversation with your parents and unprompted, they're telling you everything that that they did wrong with you without you asking and what that would feel like. And I would say that conversation was such a turning point for me. I, I would say that, after hearing her say it unprompted, I, I was just so released of any type of animosity that I had felt with certain things. And I let it go. And it was gone. Th- that was a gift. Uh, I, I don't know if my has ever received that. But to me, that was such a gift.
0: So you said earlier that your mom obviously raised you and your sister. Did she keep you guys quite connected with your Taiwanese background?
1: To an extent. The good thing is we we have a lot of cousins and we all live in the same area. So, you know, with them, we were able to grow up and we're all in the same experience because all of us were born as first-gen American. I'm so grateful for that. But, you know, as far as our connection to my Chinese side, it was to the extent of, you know, going to Chinatown on the weekends, um, you know, attending Temple every once in a while with my mom, or um, trying to go to Chinese school, but really forced, like rejecting Chinese school as hard as I could, and I regret I regret that now yeah. <laughs> because I can't speak Chinese. So um, I, w- I wish I would have stuck with it. But you know, we had the same. You know, my I, I grew up Buddhist. Um, we 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 lit incense for our house Buddha every day. Only ate Chinese food in the house, pretty much. I always had like a big pot of soup and the rice cooker going. So I was I was felt. I always knew growing up that I was not a typical American kid. I was getting the lunch pail and getting the thermos and my mom not putting milk in there, but putting soy sauce, pork, and eggs inside of the the thermos and me feeling so self-conscious about (laughs) opening it at the lunch table. Yeah, and the smells. Like I just remember thinking like, oh, my gosh, I smell. Everything about me smells because all of our food smells different. Right. right? (laughs) (laughs) So just that mortifying feeling.
0: Yeah, I had a similar thing because my mum makes the best dumplings and she used to make them with chives and, you know, Mm. like the smell of chives and – Yeah, I used to be afraid to open my lunchbox as well. Um, Especially if it was raining outside and we had to eat lunch inside, and then you'd open your lunchbox and it would just smell like garlic and chives and ginger, which is like some of my favorite smells now. But back when you're a child, (laughs) you don't want like to stink out the room.
1: Oh yeah, totally. You you're so you're like, gosh, I just want that boring sandwich and. I I want something that's so like sterile that doesn't smell yeah. that has a package, um, and I don't want any of that. But now as an adult, you're like, man, I had a good <laughs> yeah. I
0: know, like right. s- our lunches are so much better than those boring sandwiches.
1: <laughs> no, I know. I t- totally, I totally agree. But you know, I, I feel like in high school there was a turning point with that. There was more of a. Um, I went to school with a lot of Asian Pacific Islanders. There weren't a lot of Chinese people or, or other um, Asian races, but a lot of Filipinos. And so, you know, finding my my group there of other Asian people really helped me try to embrace it. So I remember starting to pack like, you know, baozi for lunch and, and being able to have those foods and have people actually say, oh, my gosh, can I have a bite of that? It was such a good change for me um, as I got older.
0: Yeah. What do you think about the the trend nowadays with Seemingly everything like Asian, like dumplings and like bao and like boba.
1: I know it's it's um, sometimes it's a bit jarring. I mean, I see kids eating sushi, and I'm like, "There's no way I would have taught my kid how to eat sushi. It's too expensive." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I I don't have an issue with it unless it's very appropriated. And I think that it's just it's there's such a fine line be- between you know making sure that there's representation but appropriating the shit out of it. And I think it, it happens so often and it just it it boils me to see that. And it's not just Asian food. It's Mexican food. It's Indian food. It's taking something and putting it through this screen and making it palatable and not ever nodding to where it's from. I have a hard problem with that. A big problem with that. Especially when the the places that are authentically owning those cuisines are seen as dirty and seen as places that you would not spend mon- more money on because they're they're cheap eats right you wouldn't pay top dollar but if a if a if a, a non-asian person opens it up and makes it look trendy they could ch- charge three times the amount and people will pay it
0: yeah i have a I'm pretty skeptical towards that kind of stuff as well because it's very much a thing here at the moment these trendy Asian fusion places run by mostly white chefs and I don't really like it when people associate for example like Asian food with being cheap and dirty and that's the only way that you can eat authentic Asian
1: food. I totally agree with you there's um there's a restaurant in Dallas that's not Asian-owned, and the name of the restaurant is Some Dang Good Chinese Food. Oh, God. <laughs> and I just saw this and was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Right? It is just crazy. There was another Asian restaurant named Gung Ho. It, and it just, it's, it's just wild. A couple of years ago, there was a restaurant in New York City that was called um, Lucky Lee's. It was a, a white couple owned, and what they were advertising on social media before opening was that you could come here and have clean Chinese food, and not feel awful two hours after eating.
0: Yeah, I and, never heard about that.
1: Yeah, and I mean they they I mean the Asian people broke the internet and just totally ripped them apart before they <laughs> <Yes>. opened because <laughs> Lee was her husband, who's white. They had yeah. no Chinese chef consultants. It was all whitewashed and and using the word clean which is common to describe food that's healthy but in context of new york chinese food which is so its own thing and to equate that as like a juxtaposition against the dirtiness of that and say that you know ours is clean it's just so offensive
0: it's so offensive and again it's that kind of trying to bring it closer to whiteness thing as well to make it more acceptable and it's Completely ignoring where it's come from. Did you also hear about that company that tried to bring mahjong into like the modern?
1: Mm, era? Oh my <laughs> gosh! I think
0: they said,
1: uh, yeah. I think those um, women are actually from Texas. I oh, think they're no. actually from Dallas. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and they were charging like two hundred fifty dollars a set or something like that for a mahjong oh, wow. set. Yeah, and I, I saw that. That they were just they were just ripped as well. I don't fully disagree that what we own is what we own, but I do think that the people that, that are really interested in the culture will dig into it and love the culture, and if they love the culture, it comes out in what they do, but I don't think that it always occurs that way. Somebody looks at it and says, oh, I love Asian culture. I'm going to just do this on my own and not consult, not include, um, not try to be a part of the community and narrative and improvement, but just make my own thing and clean it, and, and I think that's the problem, right?
0: I just in this day and age with so much conversation around these issues going on I just I it blows my mind when people keep doing this over and over again that they keep making the same mistakes and they don't do their research and they don't learn.
1: Yeah, it's it's odd, isn't it? I I think that if 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 we ourselves were to open up a Indian restaurant because we love Indian food, I don't think that we would just like go at it alone and just get books and try to improve upon Indian recipes, right? I would, I would want to, if I wanted to do a, a different spin on it, I would, I would really want to dig deeper into what it means and what, what things should should move from the original, right? And have it more of a, like an homage to it than just like an appropriation of it. I, I, don't, I don't know why that's not obvious to some, but I think that if you come to it from a place of privilege, then everything is is something for you to own. But if you don't, you question ownership more.
0: You mentioned earlier as well that you didn't really struggle growing up as an Asian male. Is that because you grew up in quite a diverse community in California?
1: Yeah, I'd like to think so. My majority population what growing up was Latino, being in Southern California. So a lot of Mexican kids were around me. Uh, I would say Filipino, Black, and White was not, I don't even, I would even question if that was the real majority. It might've been like a 40%. So it could have been a majority because everything else was kind of more, you know, broken up. So, you know, I always knew that I was not white. For example, I always knew that I was Asian and, and that I was different, but I don't, I don't remember feeling much adversity to it, but I think it goes towards where Asian people fit in the school system because we do have privilege there when I think about not having privilege or not having a systemic racist issue is that people believe that you are going to be a great student and a well-behaved student, and you're going to apply yourself and you're not going to cause trouble. Um, and to a lot of ways, you know, I think that is probably the generalization of, 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 of who we are, but I didn't fit that norm. I was not the smartest kid in the classroom. (laughs) I got Fs and Ds and I, I was not the best student. So I did—I definitely did not fit that mold.
0: Yeah. And that's where the whole model minority myth kind of comes in as well. This idea, right, that Asians are the better minority because they're well-educated, good at school, get good jobs.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing, i after our, our earlier discussion, I was, I was kind of like thinking about why model minority bugs me. And I was really thinking about, does it really offend me to be called a model minority? And I think at the end of the day, overall, I'm going to be honest, I don't think it does. Because what, all the things that you said are all positive things. There's, there's a lot of people with stereotypes with really bad implications, right? That really systemically hinder them. And, and being model minority does not hinder us. But what I hate about it is that it implies that there's a non-model minority, and I and I think that's what irks me about it is because then that implies that there's a minority or minorities as a whole are seen as model or non-model. And that means that if you group a group of people as non-model, then they're going to get less resources. And that's what bugs me about that title.
0: I think that's the primary problem with that whole model minority perception because it kind of detracts from the real problem and it kind of puts like minorities against each other because if you're of another minority group and you see or you have this perception that Asians get more than you then you kind of you know, you feel that sort of anger and resentment towards them when actually you should be directing it towards like the white supremacy and like colonialism and all of yeah, that that's like right. sort of institutional like long standing discrimination.
1: Yeah, it's kind of putting the, the negativity in the wrong place. I guess I guess the big thing is like marginalization or othering is not good on the positive or the negative end. There's implications on both, right? So the the minute you try to to other than there's an issue And, and from my perspective, why am I not American? And and why am I even a minority? Why am I still considered a minority? I I know percentage wise why it's minority, but at the same time like why am I still seen as an outsider in this whole American culture because I don't look white?
0: Yeah. And what does it even mean to be American anyway? It's a country built on immigration.:
1: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long you want to talk, but I, I just feel like you know America is is often advertises as a melting pot, a place of opportunity melting pot. Come here, take your talents, you can live the American dream, all that right. What I don't think they tell you is that the melting pot is mixed. And then they put a whole bottle of bleach inside for you to become white. And if you, if you're not white, then you really didn't melt into the culture. And if you do become quote unquote white, then you get accused of being whitewashed or, you know, I could be accused of of sounding white or, you know, I always struggle with that. Like how, how is my accent white? If, if I just, I speak California English, I was brought up in California. So how can I be accused of not sounding Asian, but sounding white? And why do white people get to own how I sound? I I, I don't, I don't understand that, that, that type of a, a concept. So my, my issue with it, with, with like America is that, yeah, come, come as you are, but make sure that you can become as white acculturated as possible in our melting pot or else you'll be marginalized
0: yeah that's such a good point and you did mention that the first time that we spoke and it's so true because they say the same thing for Auckland as well it's such a melting pot of cultures but actually it's also very whitewashed like you'll never ever be truly accepted into the society unless you bring yourself close to whiteness
1: right yeah you you if if I live in the neighborhood that I live now which is predominantly white, you know, and I did all this Asian stuff to my house, I, I don't think it'd be very well received. <laughs> <laughs> like hanging the lanterns. <laughs> yeah, you know, like putting lions out front. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> to, to make my house look Asian. <laughs> um, but you you do do you do everything to make sure to justify on a daily basis that you're not outside. You know, there's this 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 concept of of, of coding you kind of change your 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 whole code uh, based on the group that you're with and you know i feel that way from my asianness and i feel that way from my sexuality that in some groups you tend to morph to what's more palatable for that group right and you you just change change codes a, a lot
0: yeah so have you ever thought about your legacy in any way
1: Yes. And, you know, I, I always think of people having children because it's like human nature to become immortal, to replicate themselves. So everything can be passed on genetics, wealth, everything is is not just for naught. you know, you don't work in this life. And all of a sudden, everything just goes to nowhere. I I think I I think of legacy differently. Now, I, I think of legacy that can be left with my niece and nephew, with our friends, children with doing good in other ways and trying to maneuver through and be a good person. I think that's, that's enough of a, a legacy. Cause I, I, I think it's just more about me being happy with our behavior and how we really conducted ourselves in life. That that's going to satisfy me at the end of the day. Not really, you know, my name being brought up with a lot of, you know, lights and fireworks and things like that, or, you know, having a child that has my DNA. I, I don't think that's too important to me.
0: Nice. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Alex. It's been so interesting to hear your perspective and your experiences. Yeah. Thank you so much for being so frank and open as well. Really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you. I, this is, this is my first type of interview type, um, scenario and it's, it's been, it's been Could really great. Tell. And, Uh.
0: (laughs) so articulate and so many great like thoughts and perspectives
1: (laughs) oh thank you Uh, it's probably just because my mind never stops and (laughs) you're allowing me an outlet just to babble forever so (laughs) i I really appreciate it and i also want to say like i now i'm going to be able to dive into your podcast world because i didn't want to listen and bias myself but i i do think that if this is what you're doing it's really great work and much needed
0: My immense gratitude, as always, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed Alex's story and thank you to Alex for being so candid and open about your experiences. As always, if you would like to share your story, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. Search for Not Your Token Minority podcast on Instagram or Facebook or email me via the link in the show notes.